I wonder how many of you have uh, a brother or sister who is a similar age uh, to you. Um, they can be really annoying. <laughs> Growing up, I had an uh, older brother. He was about 18 months uh, older than me. In fact, he, s- he still is 18 months older than me. Um, and we were very competitive. And we're always sort of playing games, doing different things. And um, yeah, he would, he would win a lot. I remember one time, w- I think we're at my, um, our grandparents' house, and they had some really old board games. And um, one of them was uh, a board game called uh, Othello. I don't know if you've ever seen this, this board game. And uh, it's a sort of strategy, quite a simple game, but sort of a, a strategy kind of game. I don't think I played with my brother. I don't think I ever won that game. I, to this day, I've never won that game. I've only ever played against him. Um, and so it, it sticks in my mind. But what, what I remember from it, on the box, uh, the, uh, the sort of slogan uh, for the game says, um, a minute to learn, a lifetime to master. And I remember thinking, playing my brother, I was like, I think I can play this my whole lifetime. I will never master my brother at this game. But that, that idea... A minute to learn, a lifetime to master. Something that is simple, that you can grasp it straight away, but as, has a depth to it that you can get to know more and more, is really, you could des- you use it to describe the, the gospel, the message of, of Jesus. And it's something that we're thinking about through this series uh, called Paradox. The message of the Bible, the message of Christianity, is, is one that is simple enough for a, a child uh, to, to learn and know. That God has come into the world in the man Jesus Christ has died on a cross to pay for the penalty for sin and has risen again to offer new life to all who believe in him. That's a very simple message. But there's also great depth to what God has done for us. And as we sort of plunge into those depths, a lot of the time we, we get to aspects of it that are maybe more difficult to understand and many of the things that Jesus said during his ministry on this earth are kind of tricky to to understand and we're doing the series called Paradox where we're really trying to get to grips with with some of those things and a paradox is something where you have two statements that don't seem to go together properly but actually when you investigate it there's a sort of deeper truth that actually helps to make sense and that's why we're going through uh, this series and so we're going to be looking at another passage uh, and words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 11 today. Um, Last week we we thought about uh, John the Baptist and he himself was grappling with Jesus and thinking, is is Jesus really the Messiah? And he had sort of seen some signs that that was the case, but at the same time um, Jesus didn't quite match up to what John was expecting and so he wasn't sure and he was kind of grappling with that truth. This week, in this episode in the life of Jesus that we're looking at, uh, there's not much grappling going on by people. Actually, Jesus is kind of saying people around him uh, that he has been uh, ministering to, has been speaking to, he's saying, you've made up your minds about me. And so we're going to look at that for right now from Matthew uh, chapter 11. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, 
we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came, eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. One of the first things I think that may strike us from that type of passage and those words of, of Jesus is, well, when we come to the Christian God, we think it's a God of acceptance and a God of love. And so when we come to passages like this, when Jesus is quite literally giving a damning verdict on people around him, it can cause us uh, to be taken aback slightly. We think of gentle Jesus, supposed to be loving and kind, and yet what's, what's going on here? Well, firstly, let's, let's think about what Jesus is saying and, and why he's, he's saying it. There's, he uses that sort of analogy of, of the children and them making demands. What's, what's, what's that about? Well, if, you, if you've ever had kids of your own, um, you'll be very familiar with the situation when whatever you do is not good enough. Whatever you do is not the right thing, apparently. Um, if you have young children, as, as I uh, do, you know, you might find yourself in a situation where, you know, your, your son wants to go to the park. Right, okay, well, let's all go to the park. Okay, right, you need to put your shoes on. Oh, I don't want to put my shoes on. Okay, but we need to go to the, you know, if you want to go to the park, you have to put your shoes on. Okay, shall I put your shoes on? No, don't, you know, I don't want your help. You know, I want to do it myself. And then he doesn't do it himself. And then he's upset because we're not at the park yet. Do you want to put your wellies on instead? No, I don't want to put my wellies on instead. Hypothetically speaking, of course, um, that's the situation of, you, you know, whatever you say, whatever you try and do, it's not going to be good enough. And that's really what Jesus is kind of saying with the, the, the context that he is in. He has visited these different towns that he's listed and he's done, um, he's done miracles. He's uh, done, uh, performed you know, great, uh, great teaching. Earlier in Matthew, we've had the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever given. And these people are around them hearing these amazing truths. Jesus has healed people. There's probably not one of the people that he's speaking about in these towns who at least either haven't been healed themselves or have a family member or someone close to them who has been healed by Jesus. 
Jesus has done miracles. He's cast out demons. And yet, as Jesus is saying, what the people are are focusing on is the things that he's not done right in their eyes. He's not matched up to what they think a Messiah should be like, even though they've done all these things that have massively blessed them. And Jesus is saying, that's how you're reacting to me. And you did the same thing for John, John the Baptist as well. John, with his message of repentance, he stirred up a whole nation. The whole nation was going out to see John and hear from him and be baptized. But even then, people were rejecting him because he was, well, he had sort of weird habits. And he didn't quite fit in and he thought, they thought he was a bit odd. And so they might dismiss him on that basis. And yet Jesus comes and does these miracles and yet he's also dismissed. And people have you know, uh, dismissive things to say about him. And that really brings us into the real paradox of, of this passage. That more revelation does not necessarily lead to more salvation. That those who are most, well in this case, who are most exposed to the Messiah, Jesus, they have most access to it. They have first-hand examples before their very eyes of Jesus vindicating who he is as the Son of God. And yet those are the people that are rejecting Jesus. And that's what Jesus is describing here. Why is that? Because we would think, you know, if, we have, if God made himself very obvious to us, then of course, then yeah, then we'll accept Jesus. But seemingly the people that had that, that had that access to Jesus, didn't accept him. And yet we think there's millions of people around the world who have never had what these people in these, city, these towns of Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, they've not had that, but yet they have accepted Jesus and know Jesus personally. What's, what's going on there? Well, we have to conclude that accepting Jesus and rejecting Jesus, actually when it comes down to it, it's not necessarily down to lack of evidence and how much evidence some person has. It's about a lack of willingness. It's not a, lack, a problem on God's part that he's not given us enough reason to believe in him, but it's a lack of willingness on our part. And actually, that is the human condition. And there's reasons uh, for that. And it's very possible to be blessed by God and to benefit from God and yet keep God at arm's length, which is what is happening right here. And it's happening right here 2,000 years ago in Jesus' lifetime on earth. But exactly the same thing happens in our city. We, whoever we are, whatever faith we have here in this city, we receive the blessings of God and take so much for granted of what God has given to us and yet hold God at arm's length. And many Brightonians would be in that, that camp. Probably the most prevalent worldview would be sort of uh, secular, the Western secular worldview that dismisses God very quickly. But yet is very happy to be blessed by, by all the things in life that actually are gifts from God. 
to be blessed by God but hold God at arm's length? What ways have, has this city that we live in been blessed by God? Well, all of us, all of humanity have been blessed with all good things in life. The Bible says to us that everything that we enjoy, every good gift comes from God. But we don't even think about it and we take it for granted. Our very life itself, the things that we enjoy in life, our mind, an intellect, the capacity to enjoy the natural world, to appreciate beauty, to laugh, to have fun, to have close relationships with friends and family, to appreciate goodness and truth. None of these things we invented. None of these things we have brought about in our own lives through our own efforts. Actually, they're there to enjoy in life because the Bible says life is a gift to us. Humanity hasn't earned these things. Humanity has been given these things by God. We've been blessed by God. And secondly, I think, again, in our city, there'd be many people in the camp that have been blessed by God in, in ways that is very easy to take for granted and don't realize because we live in a society that has been massively influenced by the message of Christianity uh, for, for centuries and centuries. And we live in the good of that and we don't even think about it. We live in, in a society that it feels instinctively values things like equality and fairness and justice. And we um, believe that people have intrinsic worth to them and intrinsic value. And we live in a society that generally has compassion for the poor and things like that. And we just think that all well, these are just part of what society has. But actually, they're a product of being in a society that has been influenced by the gospel over many, many centuries. And actually, there's a real irony often in the criticism, the sort of secular Western criticism of what the Bible has to say. There's an irony in that so often because it, the objections are actually based on values that have themselves come from the Bible. Now, that's a slightly confusing idea. So let me give you an example of that. Many people in our city would have a great problem with what the Bible has to say in terms of uh, the seemingly restrictive sexual ethics, for example, that we find in the Bible. But it's interesting when uh, people take the Bible to, to, uh, to task on that, the reasons that we give to object to it. Because objections often sound like this, well, you know, that's the, 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 the Bible seems to be bigoted and, and we shouldn't be judgmental of other people. Okay, well, where did that idea come from? That we shouldn't judge other people. Jesus was saying that 2,000 years ago. And that's an instinctive thing for us, but actually, Jesus has been saying that for a long, lot longer than we have. Where did that idea come from? Or people might say, you know, well, it doesn't matter who you, you love. What matters is, is uh, being faithful and true and honest in a, in a relationship. It doesn't matter who that's with, but faithfulness and truthfulness and honesty and genuine, you know, genuine love, that is what matters. So you're objecting on one thing, saying this, this is what really matters. But where, where did that idea, where did that prizing of faithfulness and truthfulness and, and, and steadfastness in love come from? To me, that sounds like a God that I'm quite familiar with, actually. 
and e- or even just, you know, just celebrating the virtue of love. You know, many people in our city would say that love is the, the, the greatest thing. That sounds familiar. The greatest of these is love. That's 1 Corinthians 13. All these things that people think, oh, we just, we, we came up with these ideas. No, actually, God has brought them into our, our lives through Jesus Christ. And to, to prove that point a little bit further, let, we only have to look at what culture was like before the advent of Christianity and see the, 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 the setting that Christianity was birthed out of to see that these things were not there before. In a Roman culture, people did not have intrinsic worth to them. People just didn't think like that. People weren't valued for who you are. It's very acceptable to do things like to, to go to the slave market and buy uh, children so just for your own perverted pleasure and abuse them in any way you want because they didn't have intrinsic value. People had value based on their usefulness and their place in society. That was very common in that society. But yet Christian, Christianity came in and said, no, no, God made the world. God made people. There's a different way to think about people. And that's influenced the way we think even today. We stand in the blessing of actually goodness that comes from God. And we don't even realize it. And again, you can look around. You can look historically, but you can also look in other places around the world where Christianity hasn't been the main cultural um, thing that has influenced society and see are these values that we think are evident, universally evident, uh, uh, are they there? No, No, they're often not there. In a Middle Eastern Muslim context, would there be equality between the sexes? In somewhere like China, would there be a tolerance of other different viewpoints and compassion for minorities, like Muslims, for example? Or in a, in a, in a, in a country like Russia, is there respect and diversity and acceptance of different political points of view? Now, I know I'm, I'm talking in, in a lot of generalities there, but I think when we consider that, we actually recognize where did our ideas come from and things that we think are just so shape our thinking actually so much of it comes from God and we live in the good of it you know those things that those objections um, to what I was saying before about the, the Bible's ethics on certain things those reasons are good things they're good things and we, and we live in the good of that in this country it is good to, to love and to be accepting of other people and not be judgmental on all sorts of things that is good but that goodness actually comes from God Yet we don't realize it. Just like the people that Jesus was ministering to, they didn't know how blessed they were by him. But yet they still kept God, Jesus, at arm's length. And the third way that we have been been blessed, whoever we are in this city, is that God has made himself accessible to us. You see, in the eyes of the people in, in, in Chorazin or Bethsaida, Jesus hadn't done enough to demonstrate his divinity, the fact that he was the Messiah from God. And we, we have that attitude in our city as well. If, if I'd accept Jesus, if he made himself more obvious. And the question is, would you really? What more do you want Jesus to do? I was speaking, again, speaking to my four-year-old son the, uh, the other week and saying, you know, do you like God? And he said, I don't know. I can't see him. 
That's a perfectly uh, legitimate thing to say. But the fact is, if, if you lived 2,000 years ago, you would have seen God. Because God has not left himself absent from our human experience. He's come into our human experience. We can't say, oh, God's not made himself obvious. He's come into the world. What more do we want him to do? Turn up physically in our world? Do miracles? Do something that only God could do? Like die and then rise again? And then have eyewitnesses, people who are around at the time, so not just the people who were there in that generation could witness it, but that subsequent generations could witness it. And then that circulation of that document go right around the world and become the most widely available, best-selling book of all time, the Bible, so that anyone in our city can access it. And even we have the internet, so we can look it up. We don't even have to buy a Bible. The, The Word of God is right there. God has made himself accessible to us. He has revealed himself to us, and he invites us to accept him. But it's very easy for us to dismiss him. But it's easy to dismiss him, not because God has made it difficult for us to get to know him, but because there's something else going on. It's not that God has not provided evidence. It's a lack of of willingness on our part. And I want to plunge into that a little bit more. Because this is actually something... The reason for that lack of willingness is something that affects those who are not Christian, but also affects those who are Christian as well. The, the reality is, just like the people that Jesus was around in these towns, and just like the people in our city, and just like the people in this church, including myself, the temptation is we want God on our terms and not on His and it's very easy to think of God and say, God, you've not done enough, or you've not fitted my idea of what you should do and what you should be like, therefore I'm dismissing you. Or maybe we're not even dismissing God, but we're struggling to trust God, or, or struggling to let God be God in our lives, because God doesn't quite match to what we think He should do and say in a particular moment. Let's think about that a little bit more. Because what we've seen is people with every reason to accept and embrace Jesus somehow seem to reject him. What is actually going on there? Well, I want to encourage you, if you are in a place of investigating Jesus and trying to grapple with whether he is the, uh, the, the, the Messiah, the Son of God, God who's come into the world... That is a worthwhile pursuit. It does take time often to get your head around it and get to know Jesus for yourself. And and there's a promise in the Bible, Jeremiah 29, 13. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. Okay, so if you're on that pursuit, keep going with that. Keep asking those questions. Keep investigating Jesus. But also be aware of this. And this is important whether if you're a Christian and you're sharing Jesus with someone else that you know as well. Beware that people are not neutral when it comes to Jesus. People are not objective when it comes to God. And this helps to explain why Jesus can appear to people, do miracles right before their eyes, and they still find fault with him. And it's it's the same reason that people in this city hold God at arm's length as well. 
we imagine what we're doing, we're engaged in a sensible skepticism. And we're very, you know, that's very reasonable to be. But actually the Bible calls it unbelief. We actually have unbelieving hearts that prevent us, that stop us, that don't want us to recognize that Jesus is who he says he is. And for example, atheists often give themselves away that this is what's going on when they reject the whole notion of God, but also hate God. They actually reveal in that there's a, a compulsion to, 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 to dislike and be emotionally against the idea of God because it's not something that's purely intellectual. Does God exist or not? It actually goes much deeper than that. It's actually a heart problem, not primarily a head problem. Now, there can well be intellectual barriers to work through in coming to Jesus. That is part of it. But deep down, you know that there's also something going on in the heart. And the Bible describes this in Romans chapter 1. It says, God is revealing his gospel, but humanity's reaction to that is that we suppress the truth. We are not neutral when it comes to God. Instinctively, we are actually hostile to God. Willfully will reject him. Again, from Jeremiah Book of Jeremiah chapter 17, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We lie to ourselves about God. We might think that God is a stranger to us if we're not a Christian. But actually, the Bible says that God is an enemy to us. We actually instinctively don't want the Bible to be true. And we see this played out when people often will set a very high bar of what Jesus has to meet up to in order to, for us to accept him, but set a very low bar for any other type of spirituality. And I think we see this a lot in, in our city, that people will take on spirituality without much scrutiny, just ideas that seem quite nice and pleasing, rather than something that's much more robust I would say, like the case for Jesus Christ. You see, when we don't have Jesus, it's not that we exchange Jesus for something better. Actually, the human heart is such that it's not something better that we're after. It's anything but. It's anything but. We'll easily accept another version of spirituality rather than come to Jesus Christ because... Well, why is that? It's because Jesus threatens our self-centeredness. If Jesus is who he says he is as the Son of God, who's come into the world and calls us to repent and believe in him, there's implications for us if we accept that that is true. And so if we're honest with ourselves, we have a vested interest in Jesus not being the Son of God. And we imagine the problem's at God's end, but actually the problem is in our heart. We don't want God, Jesus Christ, to take the place of the throne in our lives because we're very happy to be in that place for ourselves the problem is not primarily an intellectual one it's a problem in here it's a problem in our hearts but the good news of the message of Jesus is that God has come into the world through Jesus Christ to address the heart to bring transformation 
to the heart. The Bible says that he's come to take away a heart of stone that's cold towards God and replace it with a heart of flesh. That's what Jesus has come to do. He's not primarily come to give you intellectual reasons to believe that he exists. He's come to bring transformation to your life. To become alive in you. And that is what happens when someone becomes a Christian. And I'm just, when I, when I think about that, and I think about this passage, I'm just blown away by, by the love expressed in this. You know, we look at this passage and we think, well, Jesus is being very judgmental here. He's, he, he's condemning these people who have rejected him. But did not the mind of God know that they would? And yet Jesus has spent so much time showing compassion. Knowing that a people, he's coming into the world and a people will reject him. In their selfishness, reject him. And yet he spends time teaching them and healing their sick. And casting out the demons that have afflicted people. That actually demonstrates the compassion of God. The love of God. That he's come into a world knowing that he will be rejected by many, but yet still loves them. Still blesses them again and again and again. And the blessing that God has poured on all of us in life, he, he, he's not doing that in order to, to, um, to be mean to us and then withhold the blessing. No, he's saying, I, I'm doing that because it's an expression of his love for the world. But maybe we're not in that camp of rejecting Jesus outright. But I think all of us come into this place where we want a spirituality on our own terms. Maybe we're here and we have accepted Jesus. We have come to him and accepted him. But do we, in our walk with God, continue to accept Jesus for who he is? And take him on his terms. Actually, I think this is a great struggle for all of us, including myself. You see, the people, they had an idea of what God should be like and what God should do. And when God didn't quite match up to that, they dismissed him. And they didn't continue following him. Do, do we ever do that? When there's things in our lives that we think God should do and he doesn't seem to do it? How do we respond? You see, as we've said last week, John was in prison and he thought, well, if Jesus is the Messiah, then he's going to spring me out of prison. I'm God's man here. But he didn't do that. And so that caused him to doubt. And today, for us, so often we want a God who fits in with our priorities and does what we want him to do all the time. And when he doesn't do that, do we not also get offended and frustrated with God and start to doubt as well? We make demands of God as well. Just like John, maybe we are experiencing pain in our lives. Maybe the lack of something we feel that we should have in life. How do we respond to that? Often we struggle to believe that God is good. And that God is for us. And what we're saying is, if I was God, I would do it like this. I would provide this. I would bring the breakthrough now. We're telling God how God should be, which is exactly what these people did about Jesus. 
Maybe it's pain. Maybe it's, it's from our past, our, our disappointment. Things in life that have not panned out the way we wanted to. And we carry disappointed and the, uh, disappointment. And so we, we struggle to trust God. And the presence of pain and, and the existence of disappointment, maybe that feeds into the way we think about the future and it, and, it, and it dampens our expectation of what God might do in our lives going forward because we're so influenced uh, by that, by what God, the ways that God has not matched up to how we thought He should be or what He should do. It's so easy to focus on what we believe God has not done. And Jesus gives us... A short sentence here that is the key to, to, to moving through that and moving beyond that. Because Jesus says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus is saying, you've rejected me for the things I, areas that I've not matched up to your expectations. But actually, what you should be doing is notice what I have done. Recognizing what I have done for you and see that that is true wisdom that comes from God. And Jesus has done a lot for the people, for John the Baptist who is struggling also, and for us as well. And elsewhere in the Bible, in Psalm 103, it says, forget not the benefits of God. And sometimes we, even as Christians, we can get into this place of, of being so aware of what God has not done for us in our eyes. That becomes, that fills our view. And there's no room left for what God has already done. And there's lies that we believe based on what we think God has not done. God doesn't care about you. He's forgotten you. Rather than focusing on what Jesus has done for you already. And what has Jesus done? Jesus has done a lot. Jesus has come into the world to die for your sin. If you are a Christian, He has done that. He has brought you into an everlasting relationship with God the Father. He has promised over your life. That even though you struggle, ultimately you will be with him forever. And he won't leave you even in the darkest of times. He's given you a plan. He's given you a future. He's shown his grace to you. In any room of Christians that you might be in, how many could give a testimony of an answered prayer? Something that God has done. And actually, we need to be a community that reminds one another of what God has done and celebrate what God has done because we can so easily get into that tunnel vision. This is what God has not done. And the perspective is all skewed. If you are a Christian, what God has done in your life far outstrips what you think He has not done. Because He has given you His Son. He has died on the cross for your sin. And that expresses God's love for you. And He's given you His Spirit. God has shared Himself with you. We need to be encouraged by that and wake up to that and live in, choose to live in the good of that. Yes, there are frustrations in life. Yes, there are things that we don't understand and we wrestle with God and that's not wrong to wrestle with God and it's not wrong to bring those prayer requests to God again and again. But let's not let that be what defines our lives and shapes our life and shapes our, uh, our, our, our emotions and our thinking all of the time. And that's why it's important that we are a community that celebrates what God has done. Make that the biggest thing and see the wisdom of God in 
that. We need to decide to do that. We need to decide to do that. And this decision is, is what Jesus is pointing us to again and again. That the people seem to have made up their minds already about, about him. And it feels like Jesus is rejecting them, but they have already rejected Jesus. And at, at this point in the narrative in Matthew's gospel, Jesus goes on to teach a few more things. But in terms of where he is, he's been in this area of the Sea of Galilee. And shortly after this, he turns and he goes to Jerusalem. And continues his journey of fulfilling what the Father has for him to do. But even then, he goes from one place to another. And he still has that rejection again and again and again. And it's interesting to trace Jesus' journey from rejection up around this area of the Sea of Galilee. To re- the rejection that he uh, experiences in Jerusalem. And the hostility that is there. Jesus, wherever Jesus went, he couldn't escape the rejection of people, and it intensified as Jesus journeyed to the, the, the cross and to the end of his life. By the end of his life, when Jesus is on the cross, everyone has turned against him. Just look through those passages and see how many different sorts of people are rejecting Jesus. The crowd shouted when Jesus was before Pilate, The crowd shouted, crucify him. He's rejected by them. The rulers, the religious leaders, they scoffed at him, it says. The Roman soldiers who were there witnessing, they join in as well with their rejection of Jesus. They mock him. And on the cross it describes two other people, who criminals who are crucified on either side of Jesus. And it says that they were also joining in that mocking of him. Jesus is experiencing rejection, 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 rejection. But then, right at the end of Jesus' life, there is one small example of one person who suddenly turns and realizes, actually, this is wrong. It's wrong to reject this Jesus. One of these criminals on the cross next to Jesus. And he realizes. And just look at how Jesus reacts to him. This Jesus who has been rejected by his hometown, by towns he's visited, by the religious leaders, by the Roman Empire, occupying force. He's rejected by everyone. When we get rejected by everyone, what are we like? Are we, you know, how does that weigh on us? But yet one person that at the end, when Jesus is dying on a cross and this criminal says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He just, in, in a moment, he's had a lifetime of rejection, uh, uh, rejecting God, sinful behavior. He's a criminal, the worst of the worst. He's been dying on a cross. And then in a moment, he turns and, he's, and he realizes, what's he going to get from Jesus? Is Jesus going to say, well, you've spent your whole life living sinfully. What, what does God want to do with someone like you? You're a criminal. And Jesus has compassion for him. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. You can 
live a whole life rejecting God. And even as a Christian, you're struggling through and struggling to trust God. Just one moment of turning to Him, you will find acceptance from Him. And so we need to decide to do that. We can decide today to to come to Jesus, even if we've rejected Him in our hearts for many, many years, or held Him at arm's length, just turning to Him. Today is not too late. There is a day to accept Him today. Tomorrow might be too late. I don't know. But today... If you've heard the voice of God, as I've been speaking, calling you, come to Him today. Simply turning to Jesus and trusting in Him, repenting and believing in upon Him. Jesus will accept you. He doesn't turn anyone away. Scores and scores of people can reject Jesus, but anyone who turns to Him, Jesus will not reject. That is His promise to you. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we so thank you what you're like. That you are a God with endless streams of compassion. Lord, we are weak people that struggle to trust you. But we thank you, Lord, whichever way we turn, we turn into your compassion. That you're patient with us. That you're kind towards us. No matter what we have said to you and how frustrated we've got with you, You're still good to us. You still love us. You still call us your children. And Lord God, we just want to pray that this acceptance that comes from God would fill our hearts right now. In Jesus' name, amen.